0: I thought about doing this in the form of a quiz. I thought what I should do is say, "Okay, I we're going to recap last week. I'll be calling on random people in the congregation to answer. I thought that would really keep you awake." So, to really see how much you're paying attention. So, but I decided against it. Last week, what did we discuss? See, this is why I didn't do it. <laughs> Pentecost. I'm going to give you this. I'm going to give you the run through. What was the, what was the biblical name? Shavuot. That's what we talked about. What supposedly began at Pentecost? Remember we talked about, yes, something birthed the church. Linda Plowden emailed me and told me after the message that in the Episcopal church on Pentecost, everyone dresses in red, which is the traditional color of Pentecost. And after the service, they have a birthday lunch for the church. So I wasn't kidding. It's a real thing, mostly in liturgically based communities. What supposedly ended that day when the church began the synagogue judaism the need for those types of things it had been replaced in essence by the body of jesus believers the new testament the law was done away with what was the problem with that no one in the first century got that message. They continued to go to the temple. They continued to eat according to the Torah. They continued to do all the things that they had always done and including going to synagogue. Good. This is fun. Now some more now some real interactive things. You ready? What was given on Shavuot in Jerusalem? Good. Check mark, doing good. Only 50 more to go. Is the Holy Spirit, which was received that day, is it relevant today? Doing well. Of course it is. We sing all kinds of songs about the Spirit. We invite the Spirit. We want more of the Spirit. The Spirit needs to lead us here and there and do all these great things. Of course it's relevant. What do we want the Holy Spirit to do? It's a, there are many answers to this. What do you want the Holy Spirit to do? Indwell, Indwell teach us, guide us. Those are good answers. I'll, I'll, give you a, I'll give you a check mark on this. What will be the evidence that we do indeed have this Spirit? The fruit is good. The Spirit actually has some fruits, right? Okay, so we'll have... The fruit of the spirit. Anything else? Keeping God's commandments. commandments. Very good. In a broader church sense, is there a specific thing that would happen when one is indwelt with the Holy Spirit? Love for the brother. Good. Okay. Perfect. I'll I'll leave it there how much have you studied the holy spirit is it something that you have looked into have you ever studied like pentecostalism and the giving of the spirit and how some of those things have come down the pike anyone dana a little bit now of course dana has a ministry degree so he was he had to no i'm kidding for something so important, something that is supposed to be our guide, something that is supposed to be a part of us, the Ruach HaKodesh, the, weird, the word spirit is a really weird word to begin with. It's the translation. King James, even better, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost, that's so strange to me, but it's the Ruach HaKodesh, which technically kind of would be like the holy wind, the holy breath. But it's the Ruach HaKodesh, but we're going to refer to it going forward as the Holy Spirit, because that's common. Don't you think we should probably know some things about the Holy Spirit? Why we believe what we believe, where it came from, what we're supposed to do with it, what it's supposed to do with us. Why do I keep calling the Holy Spirit it instead of saying he or she? All of these are questions. And I won't answer that one right now. But we're going to do that. As we're making our way toward Shavuot, as we're making our way toward the receiving of the Holy Spirit, and at the end of it, some of you will like my conclusions. Others of you will not. And that's okay. It's totally okay, because I'm not trying to convince you of anything or make you be some type of theological automatron or robot or fall into dogmatic alignment. I'm just asking all of us, myself included, to always evaluate what it is we believe, why we believe that, where we got that belief and how it actually guides our lives and our interactions with other people. Because that is one of the things that the Holy Spirit is supposed to do. It's supposed to help you witness to other people. Witness is a sort of a loaded word. But anyway, we need to start again with history. History. Last week, we talked about the Pentecost history, the real Shavuot experience. A few weeks ago, or several weeks ago, now we talked about the Jewish Jesus in that series. And we talked about church history and the great divorce and how we got to the place we have arrived. And all of those things are very, very important. They're sort of what we might term ancient history. We're going to look now at modern history, modern church history, the history of the church specifically as it relates to the number one most motivated spirit people on earth, the Pentecostals, the Charismatics, the Evangelicals. Because we need to understand that if, if the church was born on Pentecost, if that's the frame of reference, what has the church done with it since then? What did they do with the birthday gift God gave them that day? Right? Right? And most of all, how does that affect us? How does that affect your understanding of the Holy Spirit and what to do with it? Because we're working up towards celebrating getting it. Let's make it really mean something. How does it affect us, actually? Does it even affect us? How many people in here have, would consider themselves from a Pentecostal background? Okay, good. Evangelical background. Sort of similar. Charismatic Christian background. Steve, the Chabadnik is definitely a charismatic Christian. It is, you're right. It's charismatic Judaism. But I will ask you, how about the Holiness Church? Anyone? Anyone? Holiness Church. These are good things. anyone know what the Holiness Church is? good church history is amazing it really is to see how things have gotten where they got and that's bad english but that's what we're going to do today how many of you would think that Pente- regardless of whether you're from a pentecostal background how many of you think pentecostalism has had an influence on something you believe about the holy spirit if you've stepped into a church in the last hundred years, I don't care what denomination it is, across the board, almost, Pentecostalism, Charismatic Christianity have affected something you believe. That's a, 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 almost a guarantee, Catholic, Episcopal, all across the board. And that includes the Messianic Synagogue, which is sort of strange, but we'll talk about that. Todd Johnson is the director of the Center for the Study of Global Christianity. He put together, when asked about how many charismatics are there in the world, he does this first. He breaks down this demographic of Pentecostals into three waves because this is, in essence, how it happened. The first wave, the Pentecostals, were in the early 20th century. The second wave, the charismatics, were in the mid-20th century. And now, did you know there's a third called the neo which is about from the 80s and forward. But Todd, in all of his wisdom, groups these waves into one term called renewalists. Anyone ever heard that word? Renewalist. It's the new way to define these things. First, he says, individuals at random across churches, then groups, then large numbers and semi-organized movements became filled with the Spirit and embark on the common charismatic experience. All of them originally can collectively be termed renewalists. Here's my point. Johnson estimates, this was as 2010, 76 million renewalists in the United States. Okay? That is to say approximately one out of three Christians falls into this category of renewalists. It makes up the largest demographic of Christians in the United States in the world, Almost 600 million renewalists, one quarter of 2 billion que- Christians around the world, a little over one quarter. That's from 2011. Why does that matter? That's a lot of people who believe a thing or a group of things. Not all the same thing, but they have a very unified theology on some things. 600 million people around the world, that's a lot of people, and who have all been influenced on some level by this. And guess what? Because they have been, you have been. By the songs they write, the messages they preach, the books they write, the teachings that are online for everybody to take advantage of, All of it influences everybody when you have that large of a demographic. Are you with me? It's sort of boring, I know, but it's important. Anyone know the term spirit-filled? Who in the room... No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Typically the most common definition... To, to speak theologically, to, be, to, to speak uh, religiously, seminarily, for being Spirit-filled. That, that, that is directly from where? Where we were last week. Acts 2, Pentecost, the filling of the Spirit. This act of speaking in tongues constitutes what many evangelicals call baptism in the Holy Spirit. Anybody ever heard of that? Okay, good. Baptism in the Holy Spirit, Spirit Spirit-filled. It's sort of a more significant or serious level of engagement with God. Separate from the initial response of, like, getting saved, when you're baptized in the Spirit or Spirit-filled, it seems that a whole new world of things opens up to you. Uh, uh, Possibly a prayer language, according to this theology. The ability to Prophesy in a new and more powerful way to do things, more prayer, deeper worship, invigorated encounters with Messiah. And maybe most importantly, Doug said the fruit of the Spirit is something we should look for. But this baptism of the Spirit, this filling of the Spirit, according to Pentecostalism, gives you what? Of the Spirit. The gifts. The charismata. The gifts. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit, he says in 1 Corinthians 12. To one, the utterance of wisdom, the utterance of knowledge, of faith, gifts of healing. To another, the work of miracles. To another, the prophecy, discernment of spirits, various kinds of tongues. And to another, interpretation of tongues. All these are activated by one and the same Spirit who allots to each one individually just as the Spirit chooses. These gifts can manifest in a variety of ways. And that is one of the great distinctions that you'll find among renewalists, this large group, is how the gifts actually do manifest in their services. What's allowed, what's not allowed, what's kosher, what's not kosher, pun intended. All of these things are sort of that, that, that defines it. Now, interestingly, we've had people over the years come and go, a number of people, some who stayed for a little while at Nahamu Messianic Synagogue. Not so much here, it's a little different, and it's pretty new. But who left? Why? Because the congregation wasn't spirit-filled. We weren't moving in the gifts. As defined by who? Pentecostalism, charismatic Christianity. So they went somewhere else, which is good for them. And that's one question that we need to ask ourselves. Should the Messianic synagogue look like a Pentecostal church or the Assemblies of God church? Should it look like that? It's a strange question, sort of, because you could get the impression that I'm being critical, that I'm being sarcastic, or any of those things. I'm not right now. I'm just giving you information. I have well I'll talk about next week my pentecostal experiences how's that but there are a number of things that the church does across the board that we don't do not being critical of that we we you know if you look at much of our practice it's going to look different Why would a Messianic synagogue look like a Pentecostal church? And many do. Many do. There are shofar blasts and flags and running and dancing and tongues and all kinds of things in a Messianic synagogue. Why would that be? That's strange. Well, because the Messianic synagogue in its modern expression came in the 60s and 70s, when charismatic Christianity was being very influential around the world. So Pentecostal, I said first wave, second wave, charismatics, and you can put the majority of older generation Messianic rabbis and congregations into that category. So that's why you find those things there. And I'm thankful, by the way, very thankful for the fact that God used these spirit-filled movements to inspire Jews to return and find Messiah and Judaism. We might not be here as a matter of fact if it weren't for that. So let's make sure we give credit where credits due. But, you know, is that first century is that what it should look like? Is that what it, you know, we look at we look at the first century and you say, "Well, that's what we want it to look like." And and it's 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 not It's not really right. Messianic Judaism in the first century didn't look like that. We're different, and again, not to be haughty, but we don't celebrate the same holidays. We celebrate Leviticus 23 festivals according to the Bible. We don't eat the same way. We don't worship on the same day. We honor Shabbat with an intention that is very Jewish. It's very different. It's on Saturday. We pray in ancient paths of liturgy. We go back. We read Jewish sources. We study ancient Jewish texts that give us insight into the milieu and context of Jesus' life, those surrounding him. We uh, study and attempt to live our lives by Torah, So, should our idea of the Spirit look much like, would it be surprising if it didn't? If it looked very different? Would that be surprising? Of course not, and it should. It's sort of humorous to imagine that the name Pentecostal came from the idea that that form of worship and practice was the practice in the first century. Because of their commitment to to biblical authority, spiritual gifts, and the miraculous, Pentecostals tend to see their movement as reflecting the same kind of spiritual power and teachings that were found in the apostolic age of the very early church. That's what first century believers did. Probably not. We need the spirit. We need the power. We need to know the purpose and what it looks like. So here's the thing. Oh, by the way, by the way, I wasn't even gonna, like, I was, there are times when I wake up on a Saturday morning and I say, God, this doesn't seem like the thing I should talk about, even if I spent the whole week, like, really preparing it. And occasionally, um, he'll give me something else that I should really focus on and I try to do that But I woke up this morning with that feeling went to bed with that feeling and I got this email I currently attend the Pentecostal Assemblies of God Church I've been having so many theological questions and struggles But there aren't many leaders who've been willing and open to engage with me Some of these questions would go against conventional Pentecostal beliefs and theology So I think that's why they're not very open to hearing new ideas. I still attend service, but I'm struggling these are all the questions I have, and I has a beautiful, long list of questions for me to answer. It seems that many Christian thinking, such as Calvinism, Pentecostalism, don't interpret things the same way that you have, and so many things are new to me. On the other hand, I find what you have been spoken about as having more basis in the Bible, and it really takes the Bible as it is and takes God's word exactly as it is, so I'm more convinced by this than I have been by other lines of thinking. So I said, okay. Well, let's talk about it then. Because sadly, unselfishly, what happens now is that it's not just us in the room because we get the opportunity to influence other people, and that's a good thing, right? So you can bear with me if you if you know all these things. But how how did we get the influence and the definition of the spirit moving? baptism in the Spirit, being Spirit-filled, operating in the gifts. Where did it come from? We're not talking about the church fathers. We're not talking about Justin Martyr, Augustine. We're not talking about Martin Luther. We're not talking about any of those ancient dudes. We're talking about... A hundred years ago? There's a great article called The Historical Context of Pentecostalism by a colleague, Jacob Fronzek. But do you want to know where this came from? I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to run through it instead of using my notes because that'll be boring. Around the late 1700s, certainly by the mid-1800s, there was a real challenge going on in the, in the religious community. The word of God was, was not sufficient. And there was an idea that, that the science was the way that we should really try to understand the Bible. And that there were a lot of things that just didn't add up with what had always been taught by standard religious ideologies. And so you began to see a number of critics of the biblical text, not deniers of the faith, but rationalists. They had a, they had a name. They were called modernists. And the modernist movement began really in that 18, early 18, mid-1800s period. There, do you know what the Brown Driver Briggs lexicon is? Anyone ever heard of that? Again, the seminary guys. It's a seminary tool. It's a lexicon. But Briggs, Charles Briggs, was one of the three contributors, and he was an absolute pillar in the Presbyterian faith. But Charles Briggs, during this period, he went to Germany to study with a luminary, a traditional luminary. And he was very much committed to sort of orthodox Christian thought. And Charles Briggs, this pillar, studied with him and studied and tried to engage. And then at the end of it, he said, you know what? I don't follow this. This is this doesn't add up. And Briggs, in essence, became a modernist. He and many, many others became modernists. Guess what? When one new movement rises up, another one also must rise up to counteract it. Do you know what this counteraction was called? fundamentalists so we had these new higher uh, higher criticism is another way of labeling modernism right modernist thinkers fundamentalists what do you think the fundamentalists believed in what'd you say that's it thank you that's the answer i was looking for the fundamentals what are the fundamentals the fundamentals evangelicals bible inerrancy dominated their way of thinking dispensationalist thinking radically opposed to evolution anyone remember the scopes monkey trial which was about evolution being taught in the schools and you had william jennings bryan who was the fundamentalist and then there was another modernist guy who pretty much obliterated william jennings bryan in front of the whole courtroom and the whole like fundamentalist thing was really struggling my point is this they were at each other's throats about religion is that surprising to you <laughs> they were headbutting about what to believe what was okay And the fundamentalists did all kinds of different things. Remember blue laws? I seem to mention blue laws a lot. That was one of the fundamentalist practices. We're not going to buy liquor on the Lord's day, Sunday, no. And all kinds of different fundamental things. Who was in the middle? Everyone else. Now, I could talk for five hours about this. I'm not going to. I could say something right now, but I won't. I am taming the tongue. A lot of people in the middle were asking, "My goodness sakes, I want to have a relationship with God and be able to, to, to worship and just, why does it have to be like this?" they were looking for an experience. They wanted a tangible experience with God. And not all of the mishigas, as we would say in Hebrew, the craziness. They were watching it. But in 1906, in a little town called Los Angeles, (laughs) a pastor moved to town. His name was William Seymour. He was an African-American One-eyed pastor. William Seymour had been influenced by a man named William Parham in Houston, who had been influenced by a man in Maine or somewhere named Frank Sanford, who had a whole compound called Shiloh. Does anyone know this history? Well, you might know what William Seymour ended up setting up. It was on a little street in this little town called Los Angeles. Do you know what street it was? Azusa Azusa. Azusa Street. Anyone heard of Azusa Street? (laughs) Hey, it was a Pentecostal response back there. Hey, man, hello. (laughs) Because Darren grew up in the Pentecostal church. And a whole, whole, whole bunch of things happened at Azusa Street. What year was this? 1906. Do you know what people found at Azusa Street? They found a tangible expression of a relationship with God. There wasn't, for them, theological battles about higher criticism or not drinking alcohol on Sunday and the inerrancy of the Bible. It was, wow, I'm going in here, I'm seeing things happen, miracles Tongues was the big thing, right? And that had happened in the late eighteen hundreds. A woman named Agnes Oseman was the first to speak in tongues at one of William Parham's camp events or something like that. And that became the evidence. But you see, what had been now is there is this sort of strange development. There was a there was a um, a what's the word i forgot the word hang on there was this manifestation you got saved right and then there was a second thing that was your sanctification but now with agnes osman and william parham and all the things that were happening now there was a third one a third act of grace the baptism in the holy spirit what year 1906 how prevalent is the idea of the baptism of the holy spirit what year a hundred plus years ago the foundations of 600 million people's theological system was created on azusa street in los angeles I am not in any way weighing in on the legitimacy of it or not right now. I'm just simply telling you that when we study the Bible, when we read the Talmud or the Mishnah or Midrash or anything like that, and are criticized for being an influenced and a part of man-made things, these writings are 2,500 years old. The Torah is 3,500 years old. Judaism has been around a long, long time, a lot more than 1906. And so it's not really fair, but who ever said it would be fair? So... I am shocked and amazed that what's happening right now is that my iPad is updating. <laughs> so we're on our own from here. I said five hours, now it's going to happen. But I did. There was a, there's a tremendous quote from an author named Jordan Levy about understanding the Spirit and the moves of the Spirit from a Messianic Jewish perspective. Why is that important? Because that is exactly the perspective which the authors of the book of Acts and the New Testament had in mind when they wrote the things that they wrote about prophecy, word of knowledge, healing, tongues. There's a lot of different things there. That theology... From a hundred, what is the math? A hundred and fifteen years ago, it's okay for us to ask questions about this. And some of the practices and manifestations that have come down the pike from Azusa Street to now are questionable. There are things. And so, my, my, point and I wish I could give you a conclusion but I forgot it cuz it's updating <laughs> The conclusion is this. It's sort of what I how I ended last week's sermon when I said I don't ever want to be perceived as someone who is just out to like criticize to ruffle feathers, to to speak poorly of our brothers and sisters in Messiah. But I do think it is important, the question I asked in the beginning, should we have kind of a good understanding of what it might look like if we're functioning in the gifts, if the Holy Spirit is actually moving and what that would look like? Yeah, I think we should. And I think that you should be able to, when someone might criticize you for something else that is, I'm not supposed to say that word, silly, (laughs) that you have a foundation behind you to explain some of the theology that informs 600 million people's lives. Do you think that's important? I really do. And so that's my point and purpose, and that is where we're going to head next week, is we're going to have some case study on what the Spirit looks like according to these types of theologies. And ultimately, just right around the time when we gather together to celebrate the receiving of the Holy Spirit, we'll conclude this with some new understanding, God willing, okay? And I'll try to print out my notes next time. (laughs) Shabbat shalom. Let's stand.